Hello and welcome to UCL News Podcast. I'm George. And I'm Claire. So we've been officially endorsed by the UCL Provost Malcolm Grant this week, which has put a little bit of a spring in our step. Mm. But despite <laughs> the dizzying accolades, we've managed to put together another week of news and views around UCL. Yep. So this week we visited the Slade School of Fine Art to explore the wonders of plaster and how it's used in sculpture. Um, we spoke to senior lecturer Joe Volley and Professor Ed Allington, who's head of graduate sculpture at the Slade, um, and they explained why plaster is such an enduring medium. Um, and also later in the podcast, um, we speak to Emeritus Professor of Biology, Professor Roger Wooten, who's written a new book on the naturalist, poet and author Edmund Goss. Yep, so do stay tuned to hear both of those features. It's all classic UCL stuff. But before that, we got some news from around UCL. The spring season of Lunch Hour Lectures are in full swing and we've got Kath from UCL Events to tell us a little bit more. Hi Kath. Hi. Hi. Hey Kath. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about Lunch Hour Lectures please? Well, um, Lunch Hour Lectures are a chance for anyone to drop in and hear about the various interesting research projects which are going on around UCL. Um, we run them on Tuesdays and Thursdays during term time. They start at 1.15 and they only last 40 minutes. The idea is that people can bring a sandwich and find out something new in your lunch break. Um, the lecture's been running since 1942, so they're a bit of a UCL institution, and they're a free and easy way for non-UCL people to hear from some great academics. Brilliant. And who have you got coming up this term? Well, on Tuesday 19th of February, we've got Wendy Carlin from UCL Economics, and she'll be discussing whether there's a solution to the ongoing Eurozone crisis, so pretty topical. Mm. Um, we've also got an upcoming lecture on Scandinavian crime drama and Nordic noir for anyone who's a fan of the killing. Oh, that sounds amazing. I, <laughs> I think I might have to go along to that one. <laughs> yeah, so um, definitely lunch our lectures are going from strength to strength, and they're now also being live streamed in case you can't make it down to UCL in person. So do check out the events calendar for for more details. Yeah, thanks, Kath. Um, so, talking of the European Union, scientists had some very good news from them this week. An announcement was made that two projects, one focusing on graphene and the other on the human brain, have won what the EU are calling the largest research excellent award in history. So, following a two-year competition, the winning project projects will each receive up to one billion euros over 10 years so that's about 855 million pounds um, and there's UCL involvement in both projects. It's an astonishing amount of money it, it really is and the Human Brain Project is planned to last 10 years and the cost is estimated at 1.19 billion euros. Uh, more than 80 European and international research institutions are involved in the project including UCL groups at the School of Pharmacy and also in Brain Sciences. So the goal of the project is to basically pull together all our existing knowledge about the human brain and to basically reconstruct it piece by piece in supercomputer-based models and simulations. Yep, it's pretty big stuff. Um, they're already calling the Human Brain Project CERN for the brain. Mm. Pretty good, pretty <laughs> good. Um, and last but not least, it was inaugural George Orwell Day last week, and in case you missed it, UCL Special Collections were particularly in demand as they hold the George Orwell Archive containing manuscripts, notebooks and personal items of George Orwell. The material was presented in 1960 on permanent loan by his widow on behalf of the George Orwell Archive Trust. Yep, the aim of the trustees of the archive was to make a research centre for Orwell studies, so bringing together all of Orwell's printed works, including newspaper items and his private correspondence, which will help later generations to understand the controversies in which he was involved. 
I think we should have a lunch hour lecture about George Orwell, Kath. I know, well, surprisingly, we haven't had one yet, (laughs) but um, it could be one for next term, yeah. John Sutherland, maybe. Um, So, yeah, so do go to the UCL homepage or Flickr account. There's some really nice images of George Orwell throughout his life on there as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And so that's all the news for this show. But stay tuned to hear our feature on how sculptors at the UCL Slayer School of Fine Art are using plaster in their work and also a little bit about the history of the medium. Okay. I'm Professor Edward Ellington. Um, I'm the head of graduate sculpture at the Slade School of Fine Art and I'm a sculptor. And I'm Jo Volley and I'm a senior lecturer at the Slade School um, and I teach in graduate painting. Joel's going to put her hand in here. I'm going to cover it with alginate. Then the, in about three minutes it'll set. Then hopefully Joel can wiggle her hand out like a glove. Mm-hmm. Plaster is essentially calcine gypsum, which is, I guess, a kind of limestone. And how it's made is the gypsum is broken down and it's, um, it's put in a kiln. It's heated to between 250 to 350 degrees centigrade. Mm-hmm. And the aim is to drive off about 75% of the chemically combined water. The loose water in it obviously comes out at 100 degrees C. Then, at that point, the chemical composition of the gypsum changes. It's ground into a powder. And when, as we've done in the demonstration, we mix it with water, then the, um, the plaster, then when the water is added to it, um, the, the material, which is um, always hungry for water, it then almost, you could say in simple terms, it reforms itself back into the gypsum. And um, that's why it gets hot. There's a chemical reaction and you get a hard material. Hey. Oh, we've got a few little cracks here. Have we? Yeah. Oh, well. And then I'll mix the plaster and we'll pour it in. How far back has um, plaster been used by to artists my, and artisans? To my say? knowledge, it goes back to ancient Egypt. I think the earliest recorded, not recorded, but, ex- well, some of it is recorded, but the earliest references to the use of plaster as a casting material goes back to something like 3,500, even earlier, uh, you know, before the Common Era. It went out of favour, but it was used. It was used a lot in ancient Greece. Yeah. Um, I think um, one of the famous Greek sculptors, I think it's Phidias, was uh, credited with using it as a moulding material in, in ancient Greek mm-hmm. sculpture. Mm-hmm. Then it seemed to go slightly out of um, current usage and returned again in the Renaissance. But it's it's one of the oldest, most durable. Yeah, uh, artist materials. Very versatile. Yeah. I've got a reason. So what we do is, well, in the bionic well, method, is to, yeah. is to just dust. I exactly. Um, just dust it in until it's it full. What's your fascination with using plaster? Because you've used it for making things and, and as artifacts I, I, themselves. I, I, I mean, I personally think it's a fabulous material. But one of the great things about it is that ability. I think it's a bit like printmaking, but also it's one of the aspects of sculpture I find really interesting is the fact that you can reproduce it. Mm. Yeah. You can make a work and you can reproduce it and continue to reproduce it. Yeah. It allows an immense flexibility. Mm. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, I, I, th- I love the fluidity of it. Um, that you can pour it, you, know, you can carve it. 
you can you can um, you can model it. It doesn't model well no. uh, because it goes off, but you can model with it. But you can add stuff to it to make it harder, can't you? To well, you can you can retard the setting time. Um, the recommendation nowadays is uh, using vinegar, but people people used to just um, urinate in it. Yes, of course. Um, that's just acid. <laughs> As we get closer, I don't know what it helps you, what you do. But it's going out, going out of shot now. <laughs> but but it's you can just see that it's it's suddenly totally loaded. So it's just well, I think we're I think we're there. The way we just did it then is the by eye method, which is you get some water and you essentially saturate. When you look at it in the bowl, there shouldn't be any little film of water, it should be mm. full. Mm. Then you get your hand into the bottom bit and you agitate it from mm. the bottom. You don't stir it like this because mm. that puts lots of bubbles into it and you don't want bubbles. And then you just get all those bubbles to the top, pull back that sort of scum of bubbles and, and pour. Mm. And then when it's in the mould, agitate the mould and try and get. Because if you're making a mould, it doesn't matter if you've got bubbles on the outside of the mould, but you don't want them on the inside of the mould. Hopefully we can peel that out. Oh, that's, a, that's the leaf we've got already. One little bubble. No, it's not too bad. That's not too bad, is it? No, but that's, that's good. That is beautiful, isn't yeah. it? Classic Slade stuff there. Um, there's also an exhibition called Plastered on at the UCL Art Museum at the moment. So you can also check out our events blog for more information about that. And also a recent plaster-themed pop-up in the South Cloisters from the guys over at the Institute of Making. And finally, our second feature is an interview with UCL Emeritus Professor Roger Witten, who has written a new book called Walking with Goss, Natural History, Creation and Religious Conflicts. We caught up with him to talk about why Goss was such a fascinating character. Philip Henry Goss was a Victorian naturalist. He was also a recognised scientist, being a fellow of the Royal Society and also a member of the Brethren religious group. What sort of public profile did Goss have in his own time? Goss has been described by Stephen Jay Gould as the David Attenborough of his time. He was a very gifted communicator. He wrote well. He was capable of wonderful illustrations. Uh, he was trained as an artist by his father, who was a professional painter. And uh, he also lectured and gave field courses and amongst other things and his books he was also largely responsible for the development of the marine aquarium. Very difficult to keep animals alive in seawater when you don't have electrical aeration systems. But he managed devices and he was responsible for the first aquarium at London Zoo and uh, many, many people saw that and became interested in uh, having a parlour aquarium as a result of seeing that and reading his book on the aquarium. And he was also a pioneer in the use of amateurs or amateurs using microscopes to look at very small creatures and generally unveiled a lot of uh, uh, creatures to people that they'd never seen before. So he was quite influential. Well, it certainly sounds as if he was a very well-known individual, but... I understand that uh, some of Goss's work generated considerable controversy during his lifetime. Yes. Uh, in 1857, he published a book which was called Omphalos, and the subtitle was An Attempt to Untie the Geological Knot. Henry Goss knew very well about geological time, and the first half of that book gives a very good resume of ideas of geological time and the fossil record. But he also had a profound belief 
in the biblical account of creation in Genesis, and he had therefore a difficulty in explaining what he knew about, that is the geological record. And his theory was that all of the rock strata and all of the fossils had a prochronic existence, that is an existence before time. So they were in effect created. This book, as you could imagine, uh, was very different to other books that Goss had written. It uh, alienated um, his friends, it alienated the scientific community, and it alienated the religious community. And Charles Kingsley, for example, his very good friend, uh, would not allow his children to read it and uh, was really quite hostile. A general view was that God was telling a lie by putting all these fossils in place for us to see when they hadn't really existed. But uh, Henry held firm. He had his beliefs. He was not going to compromise his beliefs. And however great a natural historian he was, his religion and his very narrow religion was always much more important to him than anything else. And it's been claimed that uh, his strident beliefs led to some friction with his son Edmund. Indeed. Henry believed absolutely not only in creation and in the literal truth of the Bible, but also in the imminence of the second coming. So it was very important to him to keep Edmund close to him. And in this context, that means to become a member of the Brethren sect, of which Henry was a leading member. So Edmund, in fact, was... Uh, baptized as a boy, which was very unusual and had to get special permission for that. And this made Henry absolutely delighted because he'd always been close to Edmund and now Edmund was saved. But of course, Edmund started to grow up. He started to question. He started to have his own views. And there became a distance between them. Edmund moved to London where he took up a position as a librarian in the British Library. And he went on to become the librarian of the Houses of Parliament, became a distinguished literary critic and a commentator on the art world and particularly sculpture. He met lots of new people, stimulating people. He was able to read books that he'd never been able to read before. He wasn't allowed to read before. And all the while, Henry would write letters asking him to keep his faith, to keep the narrow view that... Henry had himself, and there was clearly going to be conflict between them. And that conflict eventually resulted in the book Father and Son, published some years after Henry had died in 1907. And it's that book which gives us the popular view of Henry Goss as being a somewhat religiously oppressive man. But it's only part of the story. He was lovely. He cared deeply for Edmund, but of course they did not share the same religious belief, and because they didn't share the same religious belief, there was a schism between them. And that's all the news we have for this show, but we'll be back in a fortnight with more news and features from UCL. But if you want to get in touch in the meantime, you can tweet us at UCL News or email us at mynews at ucl.ac.uk. Bye.